tell you all what I think about Seth. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not embarrassed by that at all. The internet can know. That's fine. Um, all right. How are you guys doing? Hanging in there? It's so interesting to me how, like, the seating changes from session to session. You know, there's like this gradual exodus over from this side, but it's cool. You guys are holding the line. You know, eventually, I feel like Emily just needs a whole row to herself just to lie down, because I feel like you're probably the greatest one in danger here of like just dying by the end of this thing. Um, but I am, I'm excited uh, for what God is doing uh, in this retreat, and uh, just I, it's just so fun for me to see you guys interact with one another and love one another, um, and uh, just looking forward to the rest of uh, our time together. Uh, thanks again for just making me feel welcome and, and just talking to me, and uh, it's just been, it's been good to see you guys. So let me pray for us, and we'll go ahead and start our, um, our time this evening. God, we thank you for this, uh, this retreat, and it's, it's hard to believe it's been less than 24 hours since we've been here. Um, and yet you've done so much. You've taught us so much. You've allowed us to enjoy and experience so much. And uh, we are eager to see more. Uh, we're eager to know you better. We're eager to um, hear from you once again. And so I pray that you would be with us, especially at kind of at the, the end of a long day. And I know that um, these, uh, these young men and young women are uh, tired from a, just a full day of lots of things. So I pray that you would enable them by your grace um, to be attentive to your word and so I pray that you would just help us to overcome any obstacles there would be to being receptive to your word, whether it be tiredness or sin or pride or apathy, that you overcome all those things so that we can see Christ more clearly tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On December 17th of 1944, 23-year-old Harao Onoda was dispatched by the Japanese army to the Philippines, the island of Lubang, to lead a garrison in guerrilla warfare. And before he left on his mission, his division commander told him, you are absolutely forbidden to die by your own hand. It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. And until then, so long as you have one soldier, you are to continue to lead him. You, have, if you may have to live on coconuts. If that's the case, live on coconuts. Under no circumstances are you to give up your life voluntarily. And Onoda was a good soldier, and he followed his orders. In February of 1945, just a couple of months after Onoda arrived on the island of Lubang, the Allied forces attacked the island, and they quickly overtook his defenses. Onoda and three of his fellow soldiers retreated into the jungles, and for months, they survived by rationing their rice supply, eating coconuts, eating green bananas from the jungle, and occasionally venturing out into the locals' villages to kill cows for meat. And it was upon killing one of these cows that one of the soldiers found a note several months later. It was a leaflet that had been left by a local resident. And it said, the war ended. The war ended on August 15th. Come down from the mountains. And Anoda looked at the note and examined it. And he concluded that it was allied propaganda. It was a trick to coax him and his soldiers out of hiding. And it was not, it was not the only message they encountered. Over the years, there were flyers that were dropped from planes. Newspapers were left out. Letters from relatives with photos. And each attempt was viewed by the soldiers as a clever hoax constructed by the Allies. And for years, Anoda and his men scraped out an existence in the jungle. They occasionally skirmished with locals. They carried out acts of sabotage as they tried to fulfill their mission. They were tormented by jungle heat. Incessant rain, rats, insects, and the occasional armed search party. Any villagers that were sighted were seen as spies, and they were attacked by the four men. And over the years, a number of people were wounded or even killed by these rogue soldiers. 
29 years later, 29 years after Anoda received his orders, Anoda was alone in the jungle. His men had either deserted him or died. But he was convinced that the Japanese army would eventually retake the island from the Allies and that their guerrilla tactics would have proven invaluable to the war effort. In 1974, a Japanese college student named Norio Suzuki set off to find Anoda. When he had left Japan, he told his friends that he was going to, quote, look for Lieutenant Anoda, a panda, and the abominable snowman in that order. And he managed to find Anoda. He went into the jungles and he found him, and the two became friends. And Suzuki tried to convince him that the war had ended long ago. But Anoda explained that he would not surrender unless his commander gave him a direct order to. Anoda later received a message from Suzuki. Suzuki had returned to Japan and come back to the island with Anoda's one-time superior officer, Major Taniguchi. And when Anoda returned to meet with Suzuki and his old commander, he arrived in what was left of his dress uniform, wearing his sword, carrying his still-working Arasaka rifle, 500 rounds of ammunition, and several hand grenades. Major Taniguchi had retired from the military. He was a bookseller, and he read aloud the orders. Japan had lost the war, and all combat activity was to cease immediately. And after a moment of quiet anger, Anoda pulled back the bolt of his rifle, and he emptied the rifle. He unloaded it, took off his pack, and laid the empty rifle across, of it, across it. And when the reality of it had sunk in, he wept. He had spent 29 of his 52 years of life hiding in the jungles, fighting a war that had long been over for the rest of the world. I want you to put yourself in Anoda's shoes. In 29 years, 29 years, even even, you're not even like halfway there, some of you guys. 29 years of experiencing paranoia and anxiety, fear, restlessness, always on the razor's edge of human limits, fighting a war that never seems to end. The enemy never seems to die. And all because Anoda didn't realize that the war was over. And we really feel bad for this guy. And what a terrible, terrible way to live your life. I think we sympathize with him, right? And in a lot of ways, we are just like him. We are just like Anoda. But the war that we participate in is not in the jungles of the Philippines. It's the labyrinth of our own hearts. Our enemy is not a foreign soldier. Our enemy is a sin that lives within us. And all of us battle with sin. We're all fighting a war with sin. And all of us can relate in some way to what Anona must have felt like. Anxious, fearful, angry, restless, exhausted, on the razor's edge. Because it just doesn't feel sometimes like the war's ever going to end. The war never seems like it's going the way it's supposed to. Where is the victory? Where is uh, the end of the battle? And the enemy never seems to die. You know, we've talked so much this week already about what it means for God to be holy. And we're starting to think now about the implications of that. That if God is holy, you are supposed to be holy. And there's a big challenge with that. And the big challenge with that is that all of us know that we're sinful. We all know that there are, there are pockets of our lives, some deeper than others, where we are in open rebellion against God. 
And there's some things maybe when you became a Christian that were easy to get rid of. You know, like uh, when I was in middle school, I cussed just a ton. Like it was hard for me to, to say a sentence without some kind of vulgarity coming out of it. It was just built into the way I was speaking. And, um, and I became a Christian in middle school and just through a lot of just gritting my teeth and, you know, just really trying hard and disciplining myself, like I, I stopped cussing, you know, because I knew it wasn't honoring to the Lord. And that was a pretty, you know, on one hand, it's a pretty drastic thing. It's pretty apparent in the way I live my life. But there are other parts of my life that seem so much harder to defeat. Like my desire, like the, the, my, my struggle with people pleasing. Like it's just constantly in the back of my mind, what do people think about me? Am I, am I, do they think I'm, do they think I'm weird? You know, and maybe some of you guys are thinking, there's no way that could possibly be concerned for this guy. You know, obviously has no shame whatsoever. Um, but like, am I, am I living up to people's expectations? You know, am, am I doing something that's offending somebody? What do they really think of me? Um, and, and, and I, and that part of my life feels as if it's, there are good days and there are bad days, but there are days when it feels like, man, is this ever going to go away? Am I ever going to defeat this thing? I mean, what is it for you? What are the areas of your life where you say, you know, I know this is wrong and I know this is a challenge, but I just don't know how it's going to get any better. Maybe it's a battle with anger or a battle with selfishness or a bad relationship with your parents or lust or, um, or materialism or maybe it's like me as people pleasing. What is it? Uh, what battle are you fighting that seems to drag on forever and ever and ever and you never see the end of it? Well, this evening, I want to bring you some good news. I want to bring you the good news that the war has been won. The war has been won. The war with sin has already been won. Now, that does not mean that the war is over. Sin is an ever-present enemy. It is a dangerous enemy that we must not trifle with but the outcome of the war has already been determined. And reality has changed because of that outcome. And because of that outcome, the way you fight this war, the way you strive for holiness, the way that you look at your sin and fight it tooth and nail is going to be different because the war has already been won. And, and so to see how this works, I want us to look at Romans, the book of Romans. And we're looking at chapter 6. And the first half of the book of Romans, Paul is describing how it is that the gospel works. Now you can summarize the gospel into some very basic, simple ideas, right? Jesus died for my sins. Maybe is the most basic way you can express the gospel. But it is such an, an immensely complicated reality that Paul is able to spend you know, multiple, multiple chapters getting into the weeds of how exactly does this work that Jesus dies for your sins and that does something for you. And we get to Romans 6, and he just unpacks this amazing reality of what it really means for Jesus to have won a victory for you. And we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. 
This is God's word. So in these verses, we're going to see three strategies for your battle against sin. If you want to be holy as God is holy, you have to employ these strategies to fight the sin in your life. So I want you to just be thinking, what is it that you struggle with? Like, what is the, the, the sin that seems to plague you the most? And what would it look like to employ these strategies in your battle against that sin? So here's the first strategy, is to recognize your radical transformation in Christ. Recognize your radical transformation in Christ. So Paul's first strategy is less about, some, is less about something that you have to do. It's less about you know, instructions you have to follow. It's more about looking back on something that's already been done for you. He's trying to get you to pay attention to the fact that if you're a Christian, something radical has already taken place in your life. Look at verse 11. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there's a command here, right? He's telling us you have to consider, you have to recognize, you have to reckon, you have to believe that something amazing, something transforming has already taken place in your life if you're a Christian. And what is that thing? He says, you are dead to sin and you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, what does he mean by this when he says this? Here's what he means. When you became a Christian, there was something that fundamentally changed about you. There was something that fundamentally changed in, in, in who you are on the inside. And specifically, your relationship to sin is dead. When you became a Christian, your relationship to sin died. And now you are alive with a new relationship, not with sin, but with God. Now, it doesn't take much, right, to admit that we're all guilty of sin. Um, I was... I was telling you guys about my niece, Madison, and uh, man, she was just full of lots of you know, funny theological moments. And um, and I remember really wanting to share the gospel with her when she was um, pretty young, you know, like like early elementary, maybe even like preschool. And I was trying to go through the whole thing and can explain, okay, God made you and he loves you. He wants you to live for him, but you're a sinner, right? And and you um, you you break God's law. You don't live for God. You, you sin against God. And sin is not doing what God requires of you. And so I asked her, you know, she must have been like, you know, four or five at the time. I asked her like, so do you think, do you think you sin? And she thought about it and she says, sometimes I make mistakes, but sometimes I'm right. You know, like he's like, you stinking kid, you know. And, and I think sometimes we view our sin that way. Sometimes I make mistakes. Because that's all the sin is, right? It's a mistake. I goofed up. I know I didn't do the right thing, but everyone makes mistakes. You know, it's not that big of a deal. And anyway, in any case, like, I, sure, I make mistakes, but sometimes I'm right. So, you know, I, I, I sin, sure, I make mistakes, but there are lots of times when I don't. And there are lots of times when I'm pretty good, and I'm definitely better than that fool right there. You know, and so there's lots of things that I'm good at, right? And so I don't understand the whole big deal about sinning. But we have to realize what our lives were like before we became Christians. That we were not just mostly good people who occasionally sinned, who occasionally did bad things. Sin was not this mere acquaintance in your life. He was not an accomplice in your life. The Bible says that before you became a Christian, sin was your master. Sin was your master before you knew Christ. And we were its slaves. We were subject to its authority. It was hardwired into you. 
and you could do nothing but live for your master sin. But what Paul is saying is that if you're a Christian, that old relationship is dead. You've been set free from the mastery of sin. And a new relationship has come into existence. You're dead to sin and you are now alive to God. So in, in your sin, all you used to do was rebel against God. You belittled him. You ignored him. But now you're alive to God. Something happened in you where you were made new. You were given a new life, a new heart. And Jesus now is your master. You have a new king, a new master. And it is your delight and joy to love him and live for him. This has happened for you, Paul says, if you are a Christian. Every Christian has experienced this radical transformation. And what he's saying is, recognize this. This is really who you are. Now, how does this happen? How is it that God changes us in this way? Paul says that this happens in Christ Jesus. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the key that unlocks this transformation. And it's only through Jesus that this kind of transformation takes place. I mean, we're all sinners, right? We, we've come into the world and we rebel against God and we deserve his judgment. And what does Jesus do? He goes to the cross. He takes the punishment that we deserve and he is raised from the dead as proof of new life and proof of his victory over sin. And here's the offer on the table. If you're not a Christian, if, if you have uh, repented, if, if you would repent of your sin and trust in Christ, you can be saved. You can have this new life. You can be forgiven of your sin. You can be acceptable for God and drawn into his family. But faith in Christ is so much more than just getting a ticket into heaven. What the Bible says is that it literally changes your life now. It's not like, okay, I, I, believe, I made this profession of faith and man, I just got to hold on until heaven. You know, I just hope that bad things don't happen and just hope that I make it. No, God changes your life now so that your life looks different now. And here's what it means. When you became a Christian, you entered into a union with Christ. Union with Christ. And this is actually a very technical theological idea of union with Christ. Now, what does this mean? Um, maybe a good analogy for this is marriage, right? So my wife, Jamie, we've been married for almost 11 years. And when we got married, there was a miracle that happened. And God said that what happens when a couple gets married is they become one flesh. They are joined together spiritually in a way that, you know, I'm still David, you know, and she's still Jamie, thankfully. And, and I, but there's, there's a, now a spiritual union that we have that I don't share with anybody else. So much so that what happens to me affects her in a way that doesn't affect anybody else. And so if I'm struggling with sin, if I'm, you know, beaten down by things, if I'm feeling discouraged, she feels that in a way that no one else does because I'm united to her spiritually. And same thing, if she experiences joy and blessing and, and fullness of life, I am the recipient of that because I am joined to her spiritually. What happens to her happens to me. And I don't enjoy that with anybody else. It's just her. And what that is, what that, that, what I share with Jamie in marriage is just a shadow. It's just an echo of our union with Christ. When you become a Christian, you are spiritually joined together with Christ so that what happened to Jesus happened to you. <clears throat> Here, let me explain what this means. What did Jesus do? He went to the cross and he died. And then he was raised from the dead. 
But what happens when you are united with Christ? Remember, what happens to Jesus happens to you. And so if Jesus died when you were united with Christ, you died with him. Something in you died with Jesus at the cross. And it was your old sinful self. It was the part of your life that was dominated by sin that could only live for sin. That part died in your union with Christ. But Jesus was also raised from the dead. And again, what happened to Jesus happens to you. So you are spiritually raised from the dead. Not only did your old self die, but you are given a new life in Christ. You are now spiritually alive. There's something radical that has happened because you are joined together with Christ. Now, do you realize what this means? What this means for you if you're fighting against sin? You know, if, if sin feels like just this unbeatable thing, if it feels like this thing that will just never, you can never get victory over, that'll never go away, and never seems to get any easier, that you're never going to have victory. What Paul is saying is remember who you are. You are dead to sin. You're alive to Christ. Something has happened in you that you cannot change, that God has already enacted, and that will never go away. Maybe you hear a message like this and the immediate thought is like, okay, I, I got a list of all these different things I got to do. I got to read my Bible more. I got to get, I got to church more. I got to stop being angry with my parents. I got to stop cussing. I got to do all this stuff. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. But what Paul is saying is that the starting point for, for fighting your sin is, is not, I, I got to, I got to try harder. I got to try harder. I got to try harder. No, the battle cry for the Christian is I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. I've been united with Christ. My old self is died. I'm not that person anymore. I am completely different because Jesus said it happened. Now, why does Paul tell us that we need to recognize this about ourselves? I think it's because it doesn't always feel like this. We don't always feel different. We don't always feel like we're dead to sin. I mean, probably even today, there were moments where you were tempted. You face temptation all the time. We fail all the time. And there are probably times in your life where you still feel enslaved to sin. Like, I can't help it. It's just part of who I am. I'm never going to beat this thing. It feels so powerful and so alive. But what Paul is claiming here is that in Christ, you're free from the reign of sin, the authority of sin. It is no longer your master. You can say no to your sin. But it doesn't mean the sin is absent. Sin is still present. Sin is still offering you temptation and, and making promises to you. But here's what's different. Is that it is no longer your master. You don't have to obey it anymore. I want you to imagine this for a moment. Imagine your life, okay, as a house. I know that's kind of weird, right? But imagine like everything that you are as being like a house, apartment, duplex, really nice shack, whatever, whatever it is that you want to be. Okay. You, you can use your imagination. And this is your thoughts, like your will, your body, your emotions, your actions, everything about you is this house, right? And before you became a Christian, the Bible says that the landlord who occupied and controlled that house was sin. Sin was the landlord. Sin was the master, owned everything, had complete reign over everything in the house. And he ruled over that house that is your soul. But the moment you became a Christian and placed your faith in Christ, something happened. The deed of ownership transferred 
so that sin is no longer the one who owns the house. Jesus bought you. He bought the house. He is now in complete total ownership over all of you. You have a new landlord, a new master, new person who owns you. And he rules and reigns over you in a real tangible way. And what's happening now in this life is that Jesus, your new landlord, is in the process of evicting the old tenant sin. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this happen before, but like um, I have friends that you know own property and they own apartment buildings and stuff like that. And every now and then you just get like a bad tenant and it doesn't pay rent, they just trash the place and you have to kick them out. And it is sometimes really, really hard to kick people out. And what are you going to do? You're going to go over there and you're like physically drag them out of the place. They're only crazy and naked. You know, like, I don't want to touch that guy. You know, and imagine, imagine sin this way. Now, Jesus has, has bought the house. But sin still wants to live in it. And Jesus is his new landlord and he's in the process of evicting this old, crazy, terrible tenant. And, and just imagine sin handcuffed by Jesus. And as, it's, as Jesus is dragging it out of the house, sin is kicking and screaming. He's knocking over furniture. He's like doing the whole nail drag across the floor thing. You see the, the outline in the carpet. And the whole time he's yelling at you. He's accusing you. He's telling you, don't you remember the good times we had? Don't you remember how awesome it was? I can still stay here. You don't have to listen to this Jesus guy. I'm still in charge. And he's screaming at you that he still has power and authority over you. But that is not true. Jesus bought the house. And he is now your master. You are free from the power of sin. But his presence is still very real. And so Paul holds his hope out to you and says, this is the strategy for fighting sin. Look at what has already happened. Before you did anything to fight your sin, Jesus fought for, your, fought for you and defeated your sin at the cross. You are a new creation in Christ. So believe it. This is who you are. Don't believe the lie that you have to obey your sinful desires. You can fight because you've been transformed. Here's the second strategy is to resist the reign of sin. Resist the reign of sin. So if the first strategy had to do with which side of the war you're on, the second strategy has to do with engaging the enemy. How do you actually fight your sin and look it in the eye and say, I don't want to succumb to you. I will defeat you. Look at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So he's saying, therefore, in light of the fact that you've been transformed, what are you supposed to do? He says, don't let sin reign in you. Don't take the instruments of your body and present it over to sin for, for him to use. Don't give sin any tools, any resource, any provision for him to have any kind of reign over you. Fight your sin. Don't act as if you're still under sin's mastery. So again, going back to this illustration of you being a house, right? Sin is being uh, evicted as a tenant. And he's still threatening you. He's accusing you. He's demanding things of you. What Paul is saying in essence is don't let sin keep the keys to the house. Don't pull out an air mattress, Right? Set it up in the living room and invite him to spend the night. Don't make it a cup of coffee. Don't ask him to stay for a while and catch up and reminisce about old times. 
if he doesn't belong there, then don't do anything that would make him feel comfortable and welcome. That's exactly what we do, though, when we continue in sin. In what ways do you make a home for sin? I mean, have you essentially been entertaining your sin as a welcome guest instead of resisting it as an evicted enemy? Here's how Paul describes it in our verse. He says, don't present your members. This is the different parts of your life. This is your, 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 your limbs, your lips, your mind, your thoughts, your will, your time, your resources. Don't present your members, all that you are. Don't present it as, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't keep giving your life over to sin. And we do this in so many ways. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe the thing that you're addicted to is, is, is YouTube. And you, you, can, you can easily just go down this YouTube rabbit trail. And all of a sudden, you're watching a, a music video. And the next thing, you're watching like, I don't know, like, I don't know, like cats fighting in, a, in an alley, you know, and, or something like that. And, and so how did I get here like five hours later, right? And it's like, this is, this is my master. Like, I'm, I, I, can't, I can't stop watching this stuff. And yet, you refuse to delete it from your phone. You know, you refuse to have any kind of accountability over it. You, ref- you, you get angry at your parents when they say, hey, get off your phone. Like, what are you doing? You know, maybe you're addicted to pornography. And the easiest way for you to access it is on your phone or on a computer that you have in, you know, in your room or something like that. And, and you're away from the people that love you, that, that you would know that, you know, if this was something you were engaged in, you would, you would, you know, they would lovingly want to intervene. But you don't do anything about it. Like you still, you, you know all the secret ways you're able to access this stuff. You know the things you can do to hide your activity and you make all manner of provision for this addiction. You Maybe you're enslaved to social media. I mean, there, are you scared to look at that little counter on Instagram that tells you how many hours you spent on you know, looking at it? Terrifies me. So I only follow two people. I follow my wife and the church and they both update like maybe once a week. <laughs> so I know there's nothing I'm, I'm missing. And, but maybe for you, it's like you just, you just, right now, even as I speak, just the mention of the word Instagram, you have this itch in your pocket. Like, dude, I wonder, I wonder what's up, you know? And your, your life is, is void without looking at this thing. And yet you refuse, you refuse to delete it from your phone as much as you know that you're enslaved to it. Maybe you're captive to bitterness and resentment, like we talked about earlier today. But you let yourself rehearse other people's wrongs against you again and again and again, and you love it. You love playing the tape of what other people have done against you. I mean, it's no wonder sin feels so powerful. It's because we spend so much time feeding it and not fighting it. So what are we to do instead? Look at verse 13. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as instruments of righteousness. Take all that God has given to you and give it right back to him. Instead of taking everything in your life and presenting it to sin as your master, all this stuff belongs to God now. So what would it look like to say, okay, this is my, I have these, I don't know, I, I have you know, this hour of my time and I don't have anything else to do. What can I do to take this hour and presents it to God as an instrument of righteousness. And the question is not how, you know, how little, how much bad can I avoid? But it's how righteous can I be? You know, what is the maximum amount of good that I can do here? What's the, the maximum way that I can, I can, I can, I can savor God and enjoy God and worship Him in this moment? 
What would it look like for you to feed your holiness? And I'm going to tell you right now that a lot of times growth in the Christian life, there's no secret magic sauce. There's no, you know, you know, mystical book that you can read that some other author has written. Honestly, if you want to grow in your knowledge of God, if you want to grow in godliness, it's going to come through two things. It's going to come through knowing God in his word, as he speaks to you in his word, and it's going to come to speaking to God in prayer. And honestly, that's what everything in the Christian life is kind of funneling towards. It's like, how do I enjoy God? And I'm only going to be able to do that as I'm interacting with him in his word and as I'm interacting with him in prayer. And so for, for a lot of you guys, you spend so much time working on so many things. You know, you work on you know, your, you know, skateboarding tricks and you work on you know watching makeup youtube tutorials and you work on um i don't know sat prep and you work on your schoolwork and you work on time with your friends like how much effort do you really put into knowing who god is what in what way have you actually presented your the instruments of your life to god for righteousness and i think a lot of you guys probably would feel the same way i do when you think about like the challenges of actually doing the things that you know will fuel righteousness. It's like, man, I can't do that. Like, it's just, this is crazy. Who lives like that? It's certainly not normal. I'm not, I'm not ready to. And, and I don't, it just doesn't feel like that's the right thing to do. I don't feel ready. I don't feel like it's something that comes naturally to me. It feels impossible. But you know what Paul would say? He would say, forget how you feel. Forget how you feel. Remember who you are. You're a child of God. You're a Christian. You're dead to sin and alive to God. And because of that, those moments where sin feels so powerful and so enticing, you can say no. This is part of the power of the transformation of the gospel in your life. Is when you come across a moment of temptation, you actually have the divine power in you to say no. So don't feed your sin. Fight it. You know, Jesus talks about how we fight sin in just some crazy, crazy ways. You know, in Matthew 5, he tells us that we're supposed to be absolute savages when it comes to sin. You know what he says in Matthew 5? He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do with it? Cut it off. If if your eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Pluck it out, gouge it out. And Why? Because it's better to enter into heaven with one good hand than be cast into hell with two hands. It's better to enter into the kingdom of heaven with one eye than be cast into hell with two eyes. Now, of course, he's not literally talking about you having to cut off your hand because I can still sin plenty with with one hand. You know, I don't know, one-handed pirate, right? Those guys, they, they sinned a lot, right? But what he's saying is you need to be savage with your sin. Like, what are the things that you just need to radically amputate? You know, maybe not even the things that are overtly sinful, like, because obviously those things need to go. Maybe there are things that are just neutral, just okay. There's nothing overtly sinful about it, but you know, for you, it leads you down a path that you're not supposed to go to. Like maybe just being around certain websites, you know, you're going to be tempted to drift even further into sin. Maybe just being around certain people knows it's going to lead you into a certain kind of gossip and certain kind of behavior. So, you know, I just, I just don't know if I can be around these people anymore. What do you have to cut off? in order to fight your sin. So resist sin. And the final strategy is to rest in grace. Rest in grace. Um, 
for the games tonight, like how many of you, are any of you guys like in the teams that are like a team that's winning? <laughs> I don't know. Any of you guys? I haven't even keep track of the score. Do you guys know the scores? Really? It's still a mystery? Okay. It was really deflating, man, when like, I think when we were doing youth retreats back in the day because Jared used to have like a scoreboard, a physical scoreboard, and, um, and he would write the scores on there as the games were progressing. And, and if you're doing really well, that was really a confidence booster. It's like, man, we're at the top. You know, we're doing really, really well. But sometimes like it's just, you know, it's Saturday morning. It's been barely like 10 hours in the retreat and you're already behind by like 5,000 points. And it's like, how in the world am I going to come back from that? And mean, in the meantime, Jared's yelling in your ear, try harder. Every game counts. It's like, does it really? Because I'm going to lose anyway, you know? And maybe you guys have ever been in that situation where it's like, okay, yeah, I can – my team's down by 50. Yeah, coach, I'll give it my best, you know, because it really matters a lot. It can definitely out- impact the outcome of this game. And sometimes the Christian life can feel like that. It's like, yeah, okay, I know. I know I'm supposed to fight my sin. I know it's not good. I know these are the things I'm supposed to do. But I, I just know I'm going to fail. And I know that I'm going to forget. I know I'm going to give into temptation. I know it's not going to be easy. And that can feel so deflating and so discouraging. But the final verse of our passage really gives us a tremendous hope. And this is the final strategy, to rest in grace. Look at verse, six, uh, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. Now, I love, I love the logic here in this passage. So he gives us a command in verse 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. And why? How is this possible? It's in this verse, he says, because sin will have no dominion over you. Do you get the weird logic there? He's saying, don't let sin over, don't let sin reign over you. Why? Because sin will not reign over you. And this is how the gospel works. You know, God tells you, okay, don't do this thing. And that's going to be possible for you because I've already won the victory. I've beat sin for you. And I've changed something in you so the sin is no longer your master. So you're fighting a defeated enemy. This is part of the beauty of what God has done in us. And look at how Paul describes how the power of sin has been broken in your life. He says, since you are not under law, but under grace. He says, we're no longer under the law. When you're under the law, we are reminded all the time that God's standards are utterly perfect, that he is a holy God. And we're faced constantly with the reality that if God's standards are perfect, then we're never going to meet those standards. Under the law, you are doomed to be a failure. Under the law, there's no way you can rest because the standard that God demands is perfection. And you try and you try and you try and you fail and you fail and you fail. And you're never, ever, ever going to meet God's righteous requirements. If for those who are under the law, there is no rest. But if you're a Christian then you're under grace and you're under the undeserved favor of God. And because of that, you can rest. God doesn't look at you and accept you on how holy you are or how little you sin, how much you're able to to gain victory over your sin. That's not the basis by which God looks at you and accepts you. God looks at you and accepts you because of what Jesus has done. And and there's no amount of sin that you can commit. There's no amount of righteousness that you can accomplish that is ever going to change how God looks at you. So what does this mean as you fight your sin? Is that you're going to fail. 
You're going to keep failing in the battle against sin in so many ways, just like I do and every person in this world does. But in your failure, your standing before God will never change. God will love you the same. And God will accept you the same. And hear this too. Your righteousness doesn't affect how God looks at you. Whether or not you're successful against sin is not going to make you more acceptable before God. You know, you gaining victory over God doesn't impress God at all and doesn't make you more lovable. He already loves you with an incomprehensible love and he is not looking for your performance to earn that love. Yeah, I think sometimes we feel as if we can move on from grace. I mean, you know, I know that I know grace. I know that Jesus died for me. That's, that's elementary. It's basic. But I need to try harder. I need to impress God with my humility. You know, I need to impress Him with my acts of service. I need to impress Him with how much I know. Uh, I need to impress Him with with how much I pray, with how much I know about the Bible, with how much better I am than those other people. And sometimes if we're looking to earn our way into God's favor and to simply feel better about ourselves because we've leveled up in the Christian life in some way, what we're really saying is that we don't want grace. Is that we want to be under the law again. We want to try to impress God, but you can't buy brownie points with God. Paul's saying that's not how it works. You're not under the law anymore. You're under grace. Um, when I graduated from college, or I guess it was my senior year in college, and I was, you know, on the cusp of a lot of things, you know, and uh, as much as like you guys who are getting ready to go to college next year, you feel as if this massive transition is, is on the horizon, and it is, it's going to be awesome. Um, that horizon at the end of college, we're thinking, oh, dang, that's adulthood over there. I got I to gotta figure that whole thing out. You know, that's even bigger. And um, it was the end, it was, you know, it was kind of towards the end of my college years. And, um, and honestly, I was thinking about the future. I was thinking about ministry. Um, and, but one of the biggest things I was thinking about was marriage. And Jamie and I had been dating, you know, at that point for like, well, like eight years or something like that and seven years. And, you know, I remember, you know, thinking I, I really want to get married. Just thinking a lot about what my future was going to look like and what being a grown-up was going to look like. And, um, and I had some free time uh, during you know, a part of the fall. And, and my dad said, hey, you know, let's take a trip together. You know, this is like your last kind of window of time home. Let's take a road trip. You know? And so we went to Death Valley in the winter, right? Because that makes total sense. And, and honestly, I'd much rather go – I don't understand these people that go to Death Valley like in the summer – where it's like, yeah, it was 115 degrees. It was awesome. Like nothing about that sounds fun to me. Um, but it was great in the winter because it was cold. Because when you're cold, right, you can always put stuff on, right? But when you're hot, there's a limit to how much you can take off. Right? And so, you know, it's just I'd much rather be cold than hot. Anyway, so we're in Death Valley. And, uh, you know, so my dad and I were talking about all this stuff. And we're talking about what I want in the future and just what I hope I can be when I grow up. And he asked me this really you know, interesting question. He says, is there anything that you, like, you wish I'd done differently as a father? And, and I don't know if your parents have ever asked you that question, right? Just a big fat meatball right down the middle of the plate. You know, they really tell your parents what's up. And um, so I thought about it. And I, what I told my dad was like, you know, I, what I, you know what I wish dad, I wish that you hadn't helped me so much. I wish you would have let me fail a little bit more. Because my dad was the kind of guy that would always, you know, when push came to shove, would always bail me out. You know, there were definitely whole, like, science fair projects that I did, you know, but were really just the result of my dad working super hard. And, and I told my dad, I, was, yeah, I wish you would just let me fail a little more. 
because I feel like I'm on the cusp of adulthood and I don't know, I don't know how to do all this stuff, but I really want to be able to. And I feel like maybe just the way that you helped me, you know, like I, I didn't need it. You know, I wish you would let me fail. And my dad was real gracious and real calm about it and said, yeah, that's, that's interesting, you know. So we're, we get to our hotel in, uh, in Death Valley and we're turning down for the night. And so I go into the bathroom to shower. My dad's, you know, in the bedroom. And uh, I'm getting ready to shower. And I look at the shower. It's a tub shower, right? And, um, and so I can turn the water on. And you know, there's usually like a, um, there's usually like a little plunger guy, right? At the faucet, right? Or the spout. You pull up, right? To, di- to divert the water from the downspout up to the shower head. There was no little, no little lever plungy thing. It was just a spigot, right? And I'm thinking like, dude, and I'm looking, I was like, I'm almost ready to graduate college. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about getting married. I, I want to be a pastor and I cannot figure out how to take a shower. <laughs> and I had this, and I had this, this, this sinking realization that I was going to have to go back out into the hotel room and I was going to have to ask my dad to tell me how to work the shower. And so I get my clothes back out. I rumble out there to dad. Dude, I need your help, man. <laughs> you got to figure out. You got to figure out how to do the shower. And so he laughed about it, and we went in there. And just so you know, do you guys, any of you guys know what to look for in case you run into that? Yeah. So what was it, Sam? What is it? Yeah, there's a ring at the bottom, right? And you may not know that. So you're gonna pull the thing down, and that acts as the thing that diverts the water to the shower head. So, uh, all right, let's close in prayer, guys. Um, so, <laughs> and so. So my, so my dad was like, you know, he came and he graciously helped me. I took a shower. And, but, you know, what I realized at that moment was I needed way more help than I thought I did. And that I really, as old as I thought I was, as mature as I thought I, as I was, I was not beyond the need for the help of a father. And that is exactly the way the rest of your Christian life is going to be. Is that from now until the day you die, you are going to be indebted to God for grace. And, and the cry of the Christian every day is help, help, help. God, I need your help. I can't do this without you. Help, I need your forgiveness. I messed up again. Help, help, help. This thing feels so powerful, but I know it's not true. Help me, God. You know, this author named Jerry Bridges wrote this. He says, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And listen to this. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. And you can have the best day ever as a Christian, and you will still need God's grace just as much as if you had the worst day. I mean, can you see how freeing this is for you? I think about the sin that you have to fight against. The war has been won, and you still have to fight it, but the war has been won. And there are going to be times when you feel defeated. Sin is going to have its occasional successes. But if you're a Christian, you're dead to that sin. You're alive to Christ. You have the option of presenting your life to God for righteousness. You don't have to give your life over to sin anymore. You can say no because of what Christ has done. Again, a lot of you guys are at the point in your life where you are making some pretty significant decisions about your life. You decide, maybe some of you are still deciding or have already decided where you're going to go to school. Some of you guys are already thinking about, are there any juniors here? Any juniors here? Okay. Things are starting to feel pretty real, right? Like, no, Seth is not. Just, just live at home forever. It's gonna be, it's gonna be great, Seth. So it's awesome. And uh, and maybe for the sophomores and the freshmen, you're thinking, man, like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm have to decide like what classes I'm gonna take, and I feel as if all these things are coming down the road. 
But can I encourage you that maybe one of the things that you need to think clearest about in your life is what is it going to take for me to kill my sin? Like I, you need to know the depths of your sin better than you know anything else and be willing to have strategies to fight against it. Because this is life and death. The glory of God is at stake. Your spiritual health is at stake. Your soul is at stake. And so I'm, I'm excited to see what you guys are going to talk about in small groups and how you can continue to fight against sin in this war that's already been won. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much uh, for this evening. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. We don't deserve it. We are just blown away by grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. You've been so much kinder to us than we ever could have imagined. And as much as we're going to struggle with sin from here until the day we meet you, um, your, your grace will still extend. And I pray for those that feel embattled and enslaved by sin, that they would realize the power of the gospel to transform them. And that they would, that they would be so eager to take up the ability to say no to their desires, to say no to these things, because what you have in store for them is so much better. Um, so God, I pray again, as they meet in small groups, would you give them humility and transparency, help them to really encourage and exhort one another, let be, there be just a good sharing of ideas about how they can fight sin together. And I pray that even out of this, this time this evening, that there would be the beginnings of real accountability, that we would desire to, to want to walk alongside our brothers and sisters, to spur one another on, to rebuke and confront and encourage and comfort. So God, be with us uh, this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, Dave.